This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There has been conversation for some time now about the costs surrounding health care and the ways that costs can hopefully be reduced. Bundling is one idea being considered and the use in some circumstances. Research here at the University of Pennsylvania looked at the impact over the last couple of years of Medicare bundling the costs associated with knee and hip replacement surgeries and the impact on the hospitals performing these procedures. Emil Navathe is an assistant professor of health policy and medicine here at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also a senior fellow at the Leonard Davis Institute and was part of the research looking into this. Great to have you back in the studio. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me, Dan. So I guess take us first through the process of what Medicare was actually doing. So Medicare actually had this crazy idea here. So they they started this program called bundle payment, which they had done before, where you take a hip or knee surgery and you actually look at it as an entire product or service. So it's the hospitalization. So it's actually the surgery itself, plus over the next 90 days, all the physical therapy and all the recovery gets bundled into one payment. But the crazy idea here is they had done this on a voluntary basis where hospitals or physicians actually raise their hand and say, yeah, I want to try this. And instead, they actually mandated it. So they picked about a quarter of the urban markets in the U.S., and they said every hospital in this market has to do a bundled payment for Mm. hip and knee surgery. What was the reaction as as this idea was coming forward by Medicare in the first place? The reaction by the hospitals, I mean. Yeah, so the reaction was really mixed, uh, very interestingly. There were some some hospitals out there that thought, you know what, we can win doing this. Uh, There's a lot of excess waste or excess spending that happens after our hospitalization. If we can get quality up and do some coordination, we can actually save money, and we get to share in that savings. We never got a chance to share in those savings in the past. Other hospitals were terrified. All of a sudden, I'm at financial risk for what happens outside of my hospital's four walls. That's scary. So very mixed reaction and very mixed reaction to the results as well. So what were the results? So the results were uh, about half the hospitals that were forced into this uh, this program in the mandatory way actually achieved savings. Uh, however, when we started to unpack a little bit more, uh, so first thing, the savings were about 5% of the overall uh, overall cost of a whole joint replacement uh, episode. So out of the gates, that's good news, right? 5% savings is actually pretty significant if we think about year over year. When we started to unpack and look at who's actually achieving those savings, we added a little bit more texture. So some hospitals are winning, some types of hospitals are losing. What is the expectation then moving forward of of this research and the hospital savings in terms of potentially other areas where you may be able to implement something like this. I mean, it really is a, it's a policy decision by Medicare and some of these hospitals moving forward. Yeah. So I think this is the, this is viewed as a proof of concept, you know, hip and knee surgery is viewed as the best place to try this because it's a very well-defined procedure and recovery. We know in general that after 90 days after a surgery, people should be up and moving. They should be able to be essentially fully recovered. If you think of heart bypass surgery, for example, very different beast. So trying this in heart bypass surgery, which by the way, Medicare wanted to do, but then it got canceled with the change of administrations, uh, is perhaps a bigger affair. It's a big, it's a, you know, more risk associated with it, particularly for the hospitals. So I think right now, largely we view this as, this is proof of concept. It looks like it can work in this condition. 
Now we need to try it out in a number of different conditions and see if it works for other surgeries and other non-surgeries. That's what I was going to say. Are there areas out there that, that you believe personally that this type of an idea can work? Are there are there combinations like hip and knee in in other spots that you think that it, with research and with with a deeper dive into it that we may be able to expand this even farther? Oh, absolutely. So I think to the extent that there are these other well defined surgeries or procedures. So a great example would be you know somebody has a heart attack and then comes to the hospital and needs a stent put in. That's another example of a very well defined episode, right? Mm-hmm. The person comes in, they get their stent. We expect within thirty or sixty or ninety days after that they're going to be fully recovered from that whole episode. And we know that the services that they get afterwards, the care that people who have heart attacks need after they leave the hospital, in terms of cardiac rehab, in terms of follow-up from their primary care doctor and their cardiologist, all really matter in how well they do in the long run. That's exactly the constellation of pieces that we need for this bundle payment to work. Now, going back to the to the re- reporting that you did, in terms of the savings, uh, in looking at some of the, uh, the the graphs from it, it would range anywhere from you know a few dollars up to a few thousand dollars. Now, that's a significant amount when you're thinking about the potential savings, but it's even a greater number of sa- amount of savings when you're talking about the number of procedures, especially hip and knee replacement, that, that you're talking about. That's right. So just to give you a sense, there are about 450,000 hip and knee surgeries in the U.S. covered by Medicare alone. That's just Medicare. Every year? Every year. Wow. Uh, it, it accounts for about 5% of all hospitalizations for Medicare. It's a really big deal. This yeah. is a high-spending item. And we're talking about just Medicare. The other beauty of this is when Medicare starts to do this, commercial insurance companies like the Blues and the Cigna's and the Uniteds of the world, they get the, they get the idea too that hey, we can do this. And mm-hmm. so that that this impact actually translates over. We think we need some more evidence, but we think into the commercial sector too. So patients are the ultimate beneficiaries here because if the cost goes down, their premiums go down. Right. And clearly, it's their quality of care, right? It's it's their pain levels that go down. It's their ability to walk after this hip and knee surgery that goes up. So this is supposed to be about the patients. We shouldn't forget that. Amal Novathe uh, joining us here in studio, Assistant Professor of Health Policy and Medicine here at the University of Pennsylvania. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, obviously, the savings is is one part of this story uh, for the hospitals, but also for Medicare. Medicare. And as we mentioned, we're trying to, to kind of do a better job of, of kind of handling costs to begin with. Uh, but when you're talking about 450000 of these procedures times an average of what probably $1500 something in that ballpark. That's right. You know, you're talking about millions upon millions of dollars being saved each and every year on healthcare in a time where we know the spending is expansive in a lot of areas. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, Medicare has been out there testing a variety of different models. I think largely we've seen pretty modest effects. This is one place where I think we've seen pretty consistent effects. So these hip and knee bundles have actually been tried since 2013. The, the mandatory, the required program started in 2016, but there's been a lot of experience with this. And so I think we have you know, more than proof of concept at this point. We, in fact, show here that if you mandate hospitals to do this, right. they can succeed on average, right? About half of hospitals succeed. There are systematic patterns. So we do find, for example, that bigger hospitals... Yeah higher volume hospitals, hospitals that tend not to be in the safety net, for example, are the ones that are really succeeding here. 
Um, so I, I don't want to overstate this. I mean, there are some reasons to be cautious or careful about this, too. Well, but then it makes you think that as this idea moves forward, that you can maybe figure out which hospitals are more you know, would be more in line to be able to do these types of policies. You also mentioned in their nonprofit teaching hospitals as well in there. Correct. Which obviously, you know, if you are picking how many ever markets, 400 and whatever markets it was, times these type of facilities, you can be able to set up almost your own network of here are the places you want to go to get your hip or get your knee done and be able to get quality care and be able to do it at a savings as well. That's right. So uh, so just to refresh, about 25% of the markets here, there are 67 markets that started out uh, in this model. Medicare, actually, the Trump administration has shifted that now. They've actually cut it in half. Okay. So 34 markets are continuing in this mandatory model. But what, what I'd like to do is just, you know, uh, paint a picture here for a second as to why these things might be working, right? So if you zoom into a hospital, imagine, you know, uh, imagine you're a, a, hip, a hip replacement patient. And you're deciding, what do I do after this hospital? I could go to a, a, a rehab facility. I could go to a nursing facility to get right. my physical therapy. And in the normal system, the hospital would say, where do you want to go, Don? You know, go ahead. Uh, it doesn't really matter where you, where, where, uh, where you go because we're not on the hook for the quality. We're not uh, on the hook for the cost. When this, when this model actually gets put in place, all of a sudden the, the orthopedic surgeon and the nurses and the care managers, they start to tell you, Dan, you know what? This is a higher quality place. This is a higher quality facility. The yeah. physical therapy is better there. You're likely to get out faster and feel better faster. So this hospital all of a sudden is, is now communicating, is measuring what's happening at, the, at that facility that's happening outside of their four walls. That's magic, right? right? In some ways, that's all of a sudden we have this this incentive coordination. So, so I, I agree with you that we need to be rational. We need to think carefully about which hospitals this makes sense for. But the premise is actually really simple. If we zoom into what's happening in the patient encounter there, it's really simple, and I think it just makes a lot of rational sense. And, and be able to potentially improve the healthcare setup on hospitals, all hospitals across the country, and not just the ones that are specifically linked to this type of, of procedure. Yeah, exactly. And we have other work underway that's actually looking at, so these markets and these hospitals that participated in this mandatory experiment, right. You know, how close are they to other hospitals and other markets? And very interestingly, we find that about 70% of Medicare beneficiaries, so about two-thirds of Medicare beneficiaries, reside in markets that look really similar to the ones that this test happened. Mm. So even if we scaled it just to those markets, we could get, you know, we could scale the impact by at least three times, it seems. So the, the, in terms of what Medicare is going to do moving forward, the expectation, I would believe, is because they had the success on this, they will continue this moving forward, even if it has been scaled back to a degree. You will keep it going in those markets because obviously there is a financial incentive on the savings to keep this moving to, to keep this going. Yeah, I think that's right. And and with maybe a little bit of a pivot. Okay. So when the Trump administration came in and the prior Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, you know, he wasn't a big fan of this concept of mandating hospitals to be in this or mandating physicians to be in it. Okay. You know, understandably, there's pushback. So if you're uh, a lower volume hospital or if you're a smaller hospital, the other, the other hospitals that didn't do as well here, you know, you might push back and say, this is really hard on us. You know, hospital yeah. margins on average in the U.S. are not that high. They might be 3 percent, 5 percent. So this is a lot of risk for a small hospital. So the Trump administration has actually pivoted. 
They've expanded the concept of the bundle payment, including for hip and knee surgery, but they've done it on a voluntary basis. And they've said that we still want hospitals and physician practices to raise their hand and say, you know what, I want to do this. What they've tried to do is create the environment around participation to be more favorable. Is there is there data showing that 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 is actually the case that is happening, that there are more hospitals, more doctors saying, yes, this is an idea that I want to start to get involved in? So the new program itself actually starts in October of this year. Okay. So we don't know yet. What we do know is there was a precursor voluntary program uh, that started in 2013. I mentioned it earlier. It's yeah. called Bundle Payments for Care Improvement. That program had pretty rapidly expand, expanding participation from 2013 through 2016. So if we look back at that and say over a 1,000 hospitals and physicians practices decided to participate in the voluntary bundle, it certainly suggests here that there's even more reasons to do it now than there were in the past. Uh, so we'll probably see pretty good participation. Well, and, and obviously, as as you move this particular piece of it forward, and as we were mentioning earlier, if you're able to find other areas within healthcare that you can do similar types of, of setups uh, in terms of being able to bundle payments for for services, you're talking about a, a a change in policy that I think a lot of people have wanted, have asked for, have really needed. For many years now, and it does then give you the idea that we are headed in the right direction on healthcare in general, knowing that the costs are going to continue to rise overall in general in the years to come. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right, and I think it's important. Uh, sort of two p- important pieces to highlight. One is there we do have proof of concept here. There are reasons to maybe be a little bit circumspect that we're not exacerbating, you know, disparities in health, for example, for black patients or patients who are on Medicaid and Medicare. And so we need to be a little bit cautious about overreading too much into the okay. results. The second piece is this is part of a big agenda. So bundle payments themselves, you know, driving, say, five percentage points of savings, that's that's big news. That's important. Sure. But there are other models, too, out there that, that Medicare is pushing, like the accountable care organizations model that are acting on a very different population of patients. These might be the chronic disease patients. This, you know, this might be your grandmother who has diabetes and has a bad heart and had some bad kidneys. Uh, for them, you need a kind of a total model, right? A model that's that's about total care. And that's what that ACO model is. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're still figuring out exactly how to piece this whole uh, pie together, so to speak, in terms of bending the trend on spending. But I think we are finding that there are these there are these specific models like bundle payment that seem to work in focused areas. That, that made me wonder whether or not we, if there is a kind of a one size fits all in this for healthcare spend and for the savings. Do you think we can get to that point or is it a little unrealistic because of some of the differences that we see, whether it be culturally or the, the types of, uh, of, uh, of, of healthcare problems that people may have or the need for medication or the need for services? Yeah, so I think I think it's impossible to get a one-size-fits-all uh, solution because of the reasons that you're pointing out. Just the variability in terms of community demographics and community needs, types of patients, disease burden, you know, et cetera, et cetera. The, that being said, I think some of the principles that we're seeing here, right, creating some accountability on the hospitals and the physicians for the cost and quality of care, those principles are common across these different models. Those are the pieces that states can say, you know what, in our Medicaid program, we're also going to use these principles, just like yeah. the federal government's going to use in Medicare. 
that part I think is is generalizable. That is in some sense one size fits all. Mm -hmm. It needs to be tailored to the specific population. But I think there is some real promise in that concept. So are the states starting to to, to buy into this a little bit more? Absolutely. So we're we're seeing, you know, one of the interesting things that Medicaid programs in general did to so the states in the past is they used uh, traditional managed care contracts. So this is like the Clinton era health, uh, you know, HMO, healthcare management or organization. And they tried that in Medicaid and they found that, you know, we can cap our budget and that's good, but we're not getting a lot of gains in quality. So more recently, what they've done is they've tried to reinvent what that looks like. And they, they call them ACOs or accountable care organizations, mm-hmm. just like Medicare does. They have a global budget, so they have a fixed budget for patient, but they're actually deploying more incentives around quality. They're saying, you know what? We want you to coordinate care. We want you to tailor programs to the specific communities because a Hispanic community might be di- very different than a rural white community. Yeah. And and they're starting to see real results. We've seen it happen in Oregon. We've seen it happen in Colorado where they've had this shift and we're starting to see real results there. So I think there's promise. Again, these these principles are really important. Uh, your point about you know tailoring or customizing to individual communities and populations is certainly uh, very salient. Well, what's been the reaction of, of the insurance industry in, in this? I mean, because certainly they have a, a big stake in this uh, moving forward in terms of the cost. Yeah, great question. So I think you know the insurance industry largely has been favorable favorable on this because without a big behemoth like Medicare changing the incentive structure, you can imagine sitting around a negotiating table. Uh, for a Blue Cross plan in a state to look at a health system like Penn and say, we want you to take risk. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the health system would say, why would we ever do that? Yeah. I mean, that sounds crazy. Yeah. If Medicare, which is the biggest pair for the majority of these different hospitals across the country, if they're saying you're going to take risk, which the hospitals can't really opt out of, then the, then the commercial pair is coming and saying, you know what, we're going to create alignment for you. We're going to make it so the way that you deliver care is consistent across your Medicare patients and your Blue Cross Blue Shield patients or your United Healthcare patients or your Cigna patients. And that alignment is actually really valuable to these hospitals. So that's where Medicare has this opportunity to catalyze change in a way that I think any single commercial insurer would really struggle. You know, it's interesting you use the word alignment. And I think it's probably a word that a lot of people have wanted to hear used where healthcare and costs are, are concerned, and it probably hasn't been used even close to enough to what it probably should have been over the last few decades. Yeah, I think that's right. And and, and we still have more work to be done. Sure. You know? yeah. So if you if you think about, yeah. you know, if you, for example, think about the incentives that are facing patients and that are facing physicians, oftentimes they're opposed, right? So So take a diabetic patient. Right, they want to go get their insulin to keep their sugar under control. The insulin costs them eighty bucks or ninety bucks. Instead, they go get hospitalized, and that costs ten thousand bucks or fifteen thousand bucks. Makes no sense. Yeah. At the same time, we're telling the primary care physician that if you get this patient's sugar under control, we're going to give you a quality bonus of a hundred bucks. It makes no sense to 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 be charging the patient for care that could be pre- you know preventing downstream costs. At the same time, telling the physician that. Yeah, they have to pay extra for this, but, but we're going to give you a bonus. Right? right. So so we have some more work to be done on alignment. Well, specifically where this research on what Medicare was doing with hip and knee replacement surgeries, what are the next few steps here? Because, I mean, obviously the data seems very promising. Obviously 
some of these facilities feel like they have made a savings. Medicare has to feel very good about where this could be potentially taking us. Yeah, I think that the next steps are really, you know, do these results persist? What what we're showing you are the year one results of this program. Yeah. So is this going to persist into year two and year three in those 34 markets that are actually continuing in the mandatory program? That's number one. Number two is, are there unintended effects that we might really worry about? Right. So our disadvantage, such as such as our vulnerable populations, you know, populations uh, that are either from low income communities uh, or, uh, you know, black patients, for example, who very traditionally had disparities in their ability to access hip and knee surgery specifically. So this condition specifically. So are we exacerbating problems in access for these vulnerable populations? We really need to get a handle on this because otherwise, while this could benefit some people, it could be really bad for others, and that wouldn't be good of the federal government to push forward. Do you feel like the the research that, that has been done here and the results, do you feel like it's a little bit like the tip of the iceberg where we've got the opportunity now to at least we've started in one area? To look at it and the potential, obviously, we're talking about a long period of time, but the potential is there to see this type of growth, to see these types of savings moving forward and obviously having a much better healthcare system overall in general in the years to come. Yeah, I think it's absolutely promising, right? So the, this is year one of results sure, of the program. Yeah, yeah. We know from the business literature generally that transformation takes seven years, 10 years, it takes a long time. So if we think about these compounded growth you know, of savings, this 5% savings compounded year over year across different conditions, different populations, different models, I think we have a reason to feel optimistic that we can actually bend the trend on the cost curve and get a handle on healthcare costs in the U.S. A lot of the people out there have felt like they, are, they were kind of in between, caught in between because of the cost issue. Uh, I would think that there there is a level out there that the hospital systems have to feel much better about these types of results, because I think to a degree there are times where the hospitals kind of feel like they're stuck in the middle as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about change here. And, yeah. and as you know, change is hard. Very hard. Right. Very so, hard. So so there are some there are some uh, some hospital systems that are in environments like Massachusetts or Rhode Island where the states have actually put cost uh, cost targets you yeah. know, or, or controls on the prices. Yeah. And that has created a situation where they know they need tools and they need mechanisms to actually drive savings. That does create more alignment. You have other places where we don't have those kind of restrictions and we don't have those kind of price controls. And the hospitals there are kicking, kicking and screaming a lot more because change is hard and they have less uh, skin in the game, so to speak, around that change. But I, I guess the the other part to it is, and you alluded to it before, is the fact that this was a wide range of markets that were involved in this research specifically, and what may work in Boston or or Hartford or you know a, a big a bigger market Philadelphia here may be very well different than what we see in a you know a, a mid range market. So again, the success may be the same, but getting to that success may have to end up being different. That's absolutely right, and that's actually one of the central messages of our research, right? So these uh, these results really apply to those bigger hospitals, those urban markets. Yeah. And when we start to tease it down and look, for example, so I'll give you like a factoid here. 
So if you take these urban markets and say, how many different physicians are actually performing hip and knee surgeries? We're talking somewhere around 60, 60 surgeons in these markets. Hmm. When you look at micro, wow. you know, more rural, smaller areas, how many surgeons are performing hip and knee surgeries? Two, three, maybe up to five. Yeah. I mean, they're really different markets. Yeah. And to expect that we can export this same model and make it work in a rural area, I think is perhaps a little overly optimistic. The question is, how do we bring those same principles and make them work in those contexts? Yeah. I think that's fundamentally important. Is, is there then a, a misconception that because you have that difference between doctors doing this in larger markets and doctors doing this in, in smaller markets, uh, is there a misconception about cost in general? Because I think a lot of people, when you say, okay, I need to get a hip uh, replaced, I, it really doesn't matter whether they do it here in Philadelphia or if I do it in Oklahoma or Iowa or whatever, the cost of actually getting it done should be the same. Yeah. In principle, you would hope that's the case. I think what we have found and the reason that Medicare started out with hip and knee surgery is because when you look at the whole shebang, the whole 90-day thing, hospitalization plus recovery, yeah. there is wide variation in cost across the country. That's why they started out on this bundle payment scheme as a way to sort of stamp out that unnecessary, inappropriate variation to make this a more consistent process, both for them from a cost perspective, but also from the patient from a patient experience and quality perspective. So again, this will be part of the year one results, see what happens in year two, three, and four, and, and continue to move on and continue to look at potentially other areas where where this may where this may come into play as well. Yeah, that's right. And I think one thing I'll just reiterate here is we may not have a one-size-fits-all model that's going to work for the rural community with yeah. two orthopedic surgeons. Yeah. But if we just look at the communities that look very similar to the markets where they tried this, that still covers seven seventy percent of Medicare yeah. beneficiaries. That's still you know seventy percent of four hundred fifty thousand is a lot of joint replacement procedures and is a lot of healthcare costs. Great seeing you again. Thank you for coming in, Emil. Thanks for having me. Thank Dave. you, Emil Navathe of the University of Pennsylvania. He is a assistant professor of health policy and medicine uh, here at the Perelman School of Medicine here at the University of Pennsylvania. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.